0: Hi, I'm Shane Safir
1: and I'm Alcine Mumbi, and this is Street Data Pod where we dream about next-generation schools that affirm love and value every learner
0: here we have conversations about healing hope and listening at the margins
1: I'm so excited for our next guest to be on this podcast. The conversation is going to be so amazing. And that's because we are talking with Melissa Biggerstaff. Melissa currently works as the Chief Academic Officer for Allen County Schools in Kentucky, and serves as a school improvement consultant and leadership coach nationally. Previously, Melissa served as the Associate Executive Director for the Regional Educational Co-op that served 47 school districts. And she has been a principal and an assistant principal, an instructional coach, and of course, a teacher. I get the opportunity to work with Melissa a little bit more closely because she is in our um, cohort five of the Deeper Learning Leadership Forum, which I run with my team at ELP. And she is affectionately known as the bishop because she be preaching, she be preaching. Oh my gosh, when she speaks, we all listen. And so it is such an honor to have you on the show today, Melissa.
2: Welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Let's just jump right in, Melissa. Can you tell us a little bit about your own journey through the educational system? To what extent did you feel seen, valued, and affirmed as you were moving through K-12 schools? And then how did these experiences shape the work you do today and your why?
2: I would say that most of my journey really reflects what I see often today in small public rural school districts in Kentucky and across the United States. I was a student in a small rural district in Kentucky, went kindergarten through 12th grade. Low expectations were the norm. Mm. It was not only accepted, but in many cases expected. And it really mattered what your last name was. So it was really set up in a sense that your zip code and your last name determined your destiny more than anything else. And so, yeah, college was never mentioned to kids like Mm. me all through school. I had super supportive parents, but they didn't know quite how to support me because my dad had dropped out of school in eighth grade. He could barely read. I figured that out when I was an elementary school student. Uh, My mom did finish high school, but spent her entire career as a secretary for a doctor in town. And so when I thought about potential and when I thought about my career, I was really focused on the things that I had never been surrounded with. and that was, I was thinking about education or something in the medical field. When I found out that my dad had dropped out of school and still struggled to read, that really began my passion around helping kids have a better experience in school Mm -hmm. because he shared some stories with me that really uh, left a huge impact on me even today, this many years later. I started putting the pieces of the puzzle together in school throughout my career when I was talking to teachers about classes and I was never offered the difficult classes. And uh, I guess the turning point in my career was when I had that mandatory meeting with my guidance counselor in high school that we all do. <laughs> and we talk about career and we talk about where we want to go. And so I said to her, you know, I'm thinking about education. I would really like to be a teacher. And if not that, then I'm thinking about something in the in the medical field. And I can still see her today. She turned her chair around and she looked me in the eyes and she said, oh, but that's hard. I think you need to think about another option. And so I was a good student. I made good grades. I was never in trouble. I was compliant. You know, I jumped through the hoops. I did everything that I was supposed to do. And so in that moment, I thought, so why am I not good enough for this? Why am I not smart Mm. enough for this? And so I just began to ask her questions, and her response to me was, well, my own nieces have tried that path and really struggled, and if they couldn't do it, I'm not sure you can do it. Mm -hmm. I remember for the first time in my entire life, sitting in her office thinking, maybe I'm not smart enough for this. Mm. Maybe I've been thinking wrong this entire time. And um, I went home. I told my parents about the experience. And of course they were furious, you know, who does she think she is? And why would she say that to you? But my family was one who had never been to school. I I had a pretty big extended family. There were many of them that were very poor. Uh, My own grandparents, I mean, on both sides were very poor. And so I remember that night thinking, it really is because of who I am. I can do the work, but it's because of who I am that she told me that today. So that was a pivotal moment for me. That was that was a moment that I can honestly tell you changed my life, changed who I, who I was, and really set in motion who I believe I was meant to be mm-hmm. luckily I'm a little hard-headed my family would tell you it's more than a little but luckily I'm a little hard-headed <laughs> and I remember looking up that day saying I'm gonna prove her wrong and not only am I gonna prove her wrong but I'm gonna be her boss one day like I'm gonna prove to her that she should never have that conversation with a kid with... A kid that is in a very pivotal place in their life where they're making decisions that impact them forever. You know, it's, it's not a matter of, did that conversation impact me that day? I still, 30 years later, think about the kids who walked out of that office and didn't do the things that they dreamed of doing mm-hmm. because of hearing the expectation of, you can't do it. You're not smart enough. It's because of who you are, your name nobody in your family has been to college she said that to me nobody in your family has been to college and i was like well how does that matter why does that matter how does that determine what i can do and so from the second i stepped foot into college and i did have to learn in college how to study i'd never studied in high school i had never taken a book home i mean i just i did what i was supposed to do i made good grades So the first year of college really challenged my thinking around, is this meant for me? Because I wasn't that kid, that college-going kid. But then I quickly realized that, uh, and, and really got the mindset of, if they can do it, I can do it. Love it. And so that, I would say, has been the greatest predictor of my own professional journey those experiences have really created and shaped the work that i do today who i am how i advocate for kids how i listen to kids and families because that has never left me i mean this many years later and i hate to even say it's over 30 at this point i still remember that conversation as if it had happened yesterday and quite honestly though i'm glad that it happened because I think it gave me a determination and a grit that has served me well through my career right. to not only prove people like that wrong, but also to help other kids find their voice, to help other kids find their passions, to help other kids find their strengths and the confidence to know that they can do and be anything that they want to be. Mm. So though it was pivotal and really negative at Mm -hmm. at the moment, it really has turned into something that has served me well through the years. That's that's why we call her the Bishop Shane. You see
0: that? (laughs) I'm understanding. Yeah. I just want to like pause and really thank you and honor you for sharing that story with us. I had chills when you talked about your dad and when you talked about this moment and I'm just sitting with... Like the the painful truth of how much these moments in a child's career in school or a child's journey as as a student can affect one's trajectory, right? Like how quickly the narrative of limitations and constraints becomes internalized. And also how amazing that you were resilient enough to say, nope. Nope, not not this story, not this journey. <laughs> I'm going to prove you wrong. And here you are doing it. So that takes us into the next question. And I'm really excited to hear about this. So moving out of kind of your, your personal story into more your professional context. Now, can you give us kind of a street level view of your school district? What's happening there? The chapter this podcast is connected to is chapter three with the core stance of anti-racism. What are the factors that are contributing to what you're seeing happening when it comes to the work in general, but also equity and, and anti-racism? So it's interesting
2: because I feel like I've come full circle. I mean, as a kid in a small rural community, I also do national school improvement work. So I work all over the country and beyond. And then I also, for about 10 and a half years, worked at our regional educational co-op that served 47 districts. And so in that service, some of them uh, were, of course, more rural than others. But I've, I've really seen firsthand how the narrative in a small rural district is often the same as it was that when I experienced it as a kid. And so whether it's low expectations, you know, I still today, I hear a lot of adults, not only here, but everywhere who work in small rural communities, say things like, well, our kids can't because. Well, our kids can't do that. It's too difficult. Mm. And so it always takes me back to that place that I was as a student, where I was thinking, Adults are making excuses for me as a kid, the same way as adults are making excuses for kids today. And so that's the, that's the challenge I think that we face. And Alcine and I've had this conversation, I've had this conversation with others, that equity in a small rural district is very different than in an urban area. It's, it's very different. The contexts are different. The social norms are different. People tend to want kids to be the way they mm. are, right? and so if they're christian they want that for their kids if they're uh, political one way or another they want that for their kids and so they tend to think that success is to be like me that's that's kind of how i would define it so i think a lot of what i do in my current role is listen a lot really ask a a lot of good questions i call them kind of coaching questions to get people to think about things differently in their own way not forcing my opinion living in a small rural community when i was younger not living in one now you know I, i i live 30 minutes away from from where i work and so I live in a community that I don't know everybody. I don't know everybody's kids and grandmas and grandpas. And and so coming back to work in a place like that, where I grew up, it really is a different context. It is a different experience for a lot of kids who go to school in a small rural district. I think every day, The work that I do and the work that district leaders do across the United States when they work in small rural districts is really about helping kids feel valued, feel heard, to help them have the confidence to know that they can do those things that maybe nobody else in their family has ever done. That's the challenge. That's really the equity challenge. Some of the barriers to doing that, of course, comes when you think about the social norms of a small rural district. Um, Everybody, I would say for the most part, a large majority of our community is Christian, for example. I'm a Christian. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I am saying that there's a lens that people look through that we have to understand as district leaders Mm. because I show up every day no matter what I believe or don't believe, I'll leave it at the door so I can best serve the kids that are in this community. So if they're saying they're something, whether it's LGBTQ or whether they have a different skin color or whether they come from a different culture that's not necessarily a norm in the community, It is really important to me that we listen and value their thoughts, their input, their opinions about school, what's working, what's not working, because I think most of what we do as school leaders, and I've been a school leader, is listen to the people who talk the most, right? And when you're somebody that doesn't feel valued, you tend to be quiet you tend to pull back. You're not on the radar anymore. And it's really easy to lose sight of those people that are most underserved unless you're really intentional about doing it.
0: So brilliant. So, so brilliant. So helpful.
1: And you're just making me think about what are the challenges of when you're in a smaller space where maybe you might be the outlier because you're dreaming so big. And what you just said, you don't feel that voice valued and therefore you just get quiet. You get small, you get quiet because it's the safest place to to be in in that context. Um, So what does it look like to choose the margins in your context? And I'm gonna roll that into the second question which is what advice would you give for educators in a similar context as you around trying to center voices at the margins in these conditions or in this context?
2: I think I can answer both of those questions in about three ways. One is to seek people out. Don't wait for them to come and find you. Don't wait for them to go asking for somebody to listen, to really seek people out and let them know that you care about them enough to listen and to want to know their opinions, their thoughts, their input, their feedback. Number two, and this is a lesson that I learned the hard way, um, and that's meet people where they are. I think as educators, we tend to expect everybody to come to us in our space, in our schools, on our campuses. And for a lot of people who have not had a good experience in school, that is just absolutely ludicrous. It's like they don't want to come here. They didn't have a good experience in school. And so I think that's what helps me think about things differently because I think most educators have gone into education because they were that good student. They were the kid that had the good experience. They were the kid that was listened to. And so I think about things differently because I come from a a little bit of a different perspective having had the experiences that I've had. And so three, I would say is listen. And I mean, really listen like don't show up to say i want your opinion and i want your thought and i want your input as a way to check the box but show up to learn show up Mm. to really listen with an empathetic lens i understand school may may not have been a great experience for you and it's because of that that it's really important that we understand what you believe your kids need what you believe we could do differently to better serve your kids so I think listening deeply through the empathetic lens is really important, like not judging. Uh, we bring so much judgment in this country, whether it is around the food people eat, the car they drive, the house they live in, the church they go to, I mean, it's crazy. And so I think we're wired to judge people when in fact what our role is to do is to listen and learn. And leave the judgment at the door. It's okay if people are different from you. It's okay. And not only okay, but we're better together when we can take our collective selves as humans and really begin to ask the questions that are most important for our kids and come from a place of experience and come from a place of wanting to understand and wanting to know.
1: Yeah. And so I want to double click or go a little bit deeper because you said meet people where you, where they are. And you meant that physically. I did. Like you legit, you were like, we're going to do this at the local restaurant.
2: That's right. So say more about that. We've been going through this process for the last couple of years in our district and people were not showing up. You know, we were having these community meetings and the, the people in the margins, the the people who were most underserved, were just not showing up. And so one afternoon I looked at my superintendent and I said, we're doing this all wrong. That's why I said I learned from experience, right? I said, we're, we're doing this wrong. Most of these families have not had a good experience in school. Many of them dropped out. We've got to go someplace that they feel comfortable. This is not about us. This is about them. And so what if we offer a dinner, we pay for their dinner at a local restaurant and we invite them to come in. If they need childcare, we get it. And we just have a conversation and we don't make it about us anymore, but we really open up to meeting people where they are physically. And we had a tremendous turnout we had some of the best feedback that we have gotten in the this two years that we've been going through this this journey they said some amazing things and we learned some amazing lessons that night and we've continued to do that we have a a together for christmas giveaway every year so i pulled in our family resource uh, you service center folks. They have great relationships with some of our most marginal families. And I said, I want you when they come to pick up their gifts that we've purchased for them, I want you to have a conversation. I want you to do a little empathy interview with them. I want you to get some input and some feedback. Again, tremendous response. We gave them food lion gift cards if they talked for five minutes about some of the questions that we were interested in. And it was it was a great turnout. Yeah.
0: So beautiful, all I can say is preach, <laughs> Bishop Melissa <laughs> you are a visionary. And I love that story. Thank you, Alcine, for following up with that question because it's so such a beautiful one inch window, which we're trying to provide these little windows through our podcast of how to listen to the data you're getting. And sometimes that's listening to the silence or the lack of attendance, right? And then thinking in more transformative ways, what do we need to do differently? How do we reshape our approach, our, you know, concept of space and time? And you just modeled that so beautifully. So one more question for you, and then we're going to do a lightning round. So the final question is, we would love to hear your next generation vision for education. And another way we um, think about this comes from our colleague, Dr. Jamila Dugan, who's talking a lot about radical dreaming. She just wrote a piece for ASCDEL magazine on that. So what's your next generation vision for education? What's your radical dream for what is possible? You know, I, I read an article when I was in college
2: that said, shake up the schoolhouse. And I quickly realized that I didn't want to shake up the schoolhouse. I wanted to tear it down. So my vision is about breaking down the silos. Education is full of silos. We put people in classrooms, we put kids in places to check a box. And I truly believe that we're better together and that learning happens everywhere. Our current 100 plus year old model is not meeting the needs of our kids, our families, our communities. So I think the way that we do that is to have the hard conversations around what is it that we really need? Because the model of education today is giving us exactly what it was intended to give us, right? It was about factory workers. It was about people following directions. What we have to do is have the hard conversations around how do we create environments and experiences for each kid to see their gifts, to see their strengths, to come together as community, to collaborate, to problem solve, and to not only value diversity, but to embrace it, to learn from it, to know that you as an individual, you're important, but we collectively, as a community, that's how we create change. That's how we create the system that I hope to see in the next 5, 10, 15 years of education.
1: So this is the fun part. These are our lightning round questions. And so they're meant to be 10 second answers, Bishop. 10 seconds. Now, Al Sing, you know, pre- I
2: struggle with that. <laughs>
1: All right. So here's the deal, Melissa. You are called to listen deeply to someone, but what
2: they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? I say, tell me more. Tell me more. I, I, I think when we are called to listen deeply, it's not about projecting opinions or beliefs. It's about listening. And people, they have a reason for believing what they believe. And I'm interested in knowing why that is. So tell me more.
0: All right, number two, what is one practice or way of being that keeps you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression?
2: I vet every decision that I make and it always goes back to what's best for kids. And sometimes that makes adults uncomfortable, but when I lay my head down at night, I, I ask myself the question and I've done it for years. Did every conversation and every decision that I had and made today, was it in the best interest of kids? And that keeps me grounded to know that this is not about me and it's not about you as the adult, but it's really about how do we best serve kids.
1: What is one form of street data that every educator should gather?
2: Oh, student voice. We don't, <sighs> we don't talk to the people who matter the most. Talk to the kids who are never asked. Talk to the kids that don't participate in sports and, and dance and art. Talk to all
0: kids.
1: Oh, beautiful.
0: Love it, love it, love it. What is a type of data that you feel is overused, maybe in the name of school improvement or equity?
2: Oh, my gosh. State assessment data, which is a snapshot, a moment in time that assesses one small sliver of what kids know and are able to do that's what gets put in the newspaper that's what we talk about that's how schools are ranked that's it it carries so much weight in education yet it means so little around who our kids really are
1: girl don't even get me started
2: i know (laughs) I, that's a that's a trick ten second question, just so you know.
1: <laughs> that's because you're you're the bishop, right? Um, so for people who don't know your work or don't know you, what do you think they misunderstand the most to get wrong? And what do you want them to know?
2: You know, that's a great question. And I'll often reflect because I'm all about continuous improvement, uh, not only for education but for myself. And I think people sometimes misunderstand passion that it's not an individual, it's not about me, it's not about climbing the ladder per se, Mm -hmm. but it really is about how to show up every day and take risk in service of kids.
0: Beautiful. We're almost done. You're doing great. What is one essential feature of your radical vision for a classroom? That learning happens beyond the classroom.
2: It's not about the classroom. We restrict learning to the classroom, or we try to restrict learning to the classroom, but the best learning is experience. I mean, think about it. Think about when you became a teacher, you didn't learn what you needed to know from a classroom. You learned it by doing the work. You you learn the work by doing the work. And so letting kids learn outside of the classroom, uh, whether it be through internships or partnerships with community, there's no better teacher than experience. So a great
1: learning experience will, so this is impact, a great learning experience will
2: change a child's life. I think it will help build confidence. It will help um, them begin to understand their passions, their future, what they want to do with their life. And I think it, it takes those great learning experiences to help
0: kids do that. Bishop Biggerstaff, you are something else. I am just moved and touched at my core by what you've shared today and so grateful that our listeners are going to get to hear and learn from your wisdom. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you so much, Melissa.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumbi. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera, my former student, for our theme music.
1: If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon... Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Next week on Street Data Pod. I experienced a lot of alienation in school. Nobody reached out to me during that time. There was no educators who really saw me for who i was took an interest in me and the system just didn't didn't see who i was educational oops okay let me try to make this bigger